cats and kittens. We're back with another very special stay at home self quarantine episode of the Brando cast. Yes. Do you know what it would be like to literally be the coolest person in any room that you entered? Do you know what that would be like people? I don't think you do. My guest today, no matter where he goes on the planet earth, be it Los Angeles, New York, New Orleans, this guy turns heads because he's the coolest motherfucker on the planet. He is an actor. He's a writer. He's a director. Oh, and he also happens to own some of the coolest places to hang on the planet Earth, such as Monty's on 7th Street and the Grasshopper in Long Beach, California. Ladies and gentlemen, he is known to the citizens of the Hollywood Hills simply as Rio. I present to you, Mr. Rio. Hackford. My friend. Yes. <laughs> it is good to be with you. I'm just going to say, I've, I've actually brought you up on the podcast before, sir, because uh, even though, you know, really in the, in, in our later adult lives, we, we haven't seen each other too much in my formative college years. Yes. There were a few characters more important to me than you. I can say the same about you, my friend. Well, you were one of the people who was a Sherpa for me into a cooler world and a cooler world of music, bar none. I think of you. I think of Matt Sweeney as my sort of number one and two. And then when my friends and I moved to Los Angeles, your hometown, and you returned to Los Angeles after going to school in Chicago, Mr. Rio Hackford was also the person who took us out and showed us where to fucking go. Yes. Those Chicago years were fantastic. They were formative years for for all of us, though. Have you watched the documentary on Wax Tracks Records that's available via Amazon? I have not yet. I have not yet because it's so close to home. Some of these things that are so close to home, it's hard to go when you were there. It's hard to like. It's hard to make the the decision to actually commit to watching this stuff. You know, when you when you were there, and you're kind of like, well, what more can they? tell me about what was happening in the trenches while we were in it. You know what I mean? It's like, but I will, if you recommend it, I will do it. Well, it's, it is a wonderful time capsule because Rio and I were fortunate to be in Chicago in the mid eighties. And there was this whole amazing punk rock alternative rock before the days of Nirvana. It was so easy to go see shows because everyone traveled through the Midwest. There were so many great clubs, but West tracks records. It was a record store. And it was also a record label that played industrial music, the early ministry, yes. Front 242, KMFDM, and the, the mass, the mother club was the Cabaret Metro, Cabaret, which... But also the Cubby Bear was right down the street, too, wasn't it? Absolutely, which is yeah. such a bro bar now. Yes. Uh, is it really? <laughs> oh, my God. Wait, for the really the last, like, 25 years, it's been the number one bar for young Big Ten bros. That's awesome. Because uh, that time, it was, like, the cutting-edge... Mm-hmm. Indie rock thing, right? I mean, it was awesome. Well, yeah, Jane's Addiction, the first time they ever played in Chicago, they played right. the Cubby Bear. Right. But the, you will love the Wax Tracks documentary because it, I was always a little intimidated every time I went dancing at the Smart Bar or went to see, you know, the Pixies or Soul Asylum with you guys at the, at the, at the, at the, at the Cabaret Metro. But just to know that, no, it was just a bunch of nerds. Yeah. <laughs> they Look weren't scary that. people. Looking back, it was we were all a bunch of nerds. Right, exactly. I may have had like one step up 
because I brought my skateboard from LA or whatever. But beyond that, you know, and the long hair or whatever, but yeah. Rio Hackford had the most ridiculous in the days before Sebastian Bach of Skid Row. He had blonde hair that went all the way down to his waist. (laughs) You know what was crazy? This is a, just a sideline. When I went to audition for the Goodman theater school, I, it was like the spring of 88. And I went to, I can't remember where I was staying um, at some hotel close by and I had to go audition. And I'm walking to DePaul to go to the thing. And this is on my way to the audition. I'm like going through my lines and shit like that. And I run into Slash and Duff McKagan and Axel. What? Yeah. And, and Izzy. I run into fucking Guns N' Roses, like on the street, like right by Lincoln and DeFerzy and Racine, like right in that little pocket there on the way to fuck. I'm just like, I mean, there's no one else around except Guns N' Roses standing in Chicago. And I've got like, and I had run into these guys. I've been going to these shows and stuff and like our paths across. And this is like when it was still kind of like hairsprayed a little bit. It was still a little glammed out. And they were like, they were a sore thumb and I was a sore thumb as well with the long hair in Chicago, but there was no one else around. And I was just like, dudes, like, what the fuck are you doing here? And they look at me and they're like, wait, Oh wait, what are you doing here? I'm like, I'm going to fucking audition for this fucking school. They're like, what? I'm like, never mind. Like, but what the fuck are you doing here? Oh, we're recording. And I'm like, I can't like, my mind was so blown. And I was like, well, I got to, go to this audition and they were, we were kind of like, well, what do we do now? And they were like, good luck, dude. <laughs> it was just like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, I remember that recent, like it, it kind of like left my memory banks. Just like was thinking about Chicago, whatever. That was insane. That was like my first step into Chicago was just like a smack back in the face of fucking Hollywood. It was so weird. Uh, well, my friend, it is so awesome to see you. And as I said before, Rio sharpened me through so many uh, amazing experiences in my life. It's going to be a tough guy because we have so many years. Oh, yeah. We got a lot to catch up on. How we just form it into one capsule is going to be tough. You know? Well, I, I, I know we're going to go to some fun places today, but I want to ask this real quick. The other thing that Rio was amazing, as I said in the intro, was, was taking uh, me and my friends, Bill, Brent, Jeff. Hello, guys, fish to the great places to be in Los Angeles. Early 90s, three of clubs when it opened. Rio got a job as a bar back there. I'll ask him about that yes. coming down the pike. But now he's trans he's transformed that uh, influencer and tastemaker hat that he was wearing a million years ago into a current day deal. And I want to know how the grasshopper is doing. And I want to know how Monty's is doing. You know, there's well, there's there's a few other bars besides that, too. The- right. This year has been the most brutalized year for bars and restaurants and service industry ever, music venues. So uh, it has been totally insane and terrible. But because everyone's going through it um, together, it's kind of lessened the load. And we have all of each other to kind of lean on and go like, can you fucking believe that this is happening to us? But the bar bars and music venues specifically have been pinpointed and kind of we've been like the bad guy. You know, it's so crazy. These places where we all have gone to meet and socialize and uh, listen to music and kind of open our 
minds and loosen up and have a drink and stuff have just we've we're the we're the villains in this scenario it's so crazy you know um and normally in like a a thing like this people would be going out and getting hammered like any other disaster the bar business is booming right and we've just been fucking closed i mean i've got these places in new orleans and san francisco as well all of which have been closed i mean the monty's been closed for over a year Albert Ludo, the other place downtown LA, has been closed for a year. The Grasshopper, which is the newest thing, and and uh, One Eye Jacks in New Orleans and Pals in New Orleans and the Homestead in San Francisco, those are all. But a few of the neighborhood places we've been able to do to go stuff, and the overhead is so low, where we were able to have one person there making some drinks and some mason jars and sending them out the door and kind of keeping the dream alive a little bit, you know. But the bigger places have just been shut down, you know? And like this, the El Dorado, which is in the basement of this building, this beautiful place. Like what happens, like when is that going to be able to open? Mm. Even though we've got the purple light, green, whatever the fucking light is now, who's going to go down to the fucking basement of a bar, right? You know what I mean? It's like there's no room for a patio. And also, what's the difference? I'll just vent for a second. And we can go yeah. Yeah. What's the difference between going to a restaurant in the outside patio and having a beer and going to a bar in the outside patio and having a beer? Like, what's the fucking difference? You know what I mean? It's so crazy. I, it's, I've, luckily, things are turning around, stuff's opening back up. To answer your question, the grasshopper's back open. We have, we're able to have an outside patio there because we've got a great little parking lot and we've made this awesome, cool, vibed out uh, patio and we're now partially inside so that's great monty is gonna we're working on the outside patio thing there hopefully be open in the next couple of weeks hopefully beginning of june or something but it's been fucking insane man. It's yeah been crazy. it's been crazy. why i've been thinking about you during the whole time because i mean as you said the bar and restaurant industry took it on the chin in in the worst way i mean in, in, it's insane but you know there is you know these grants and stuff that are coming through hopefully everyone is taking advantage of that and hopefully we can you know we're not going to get whole but it's going to help and help people get their doors back open and um get stuff up and running again what's clear with the places like pals and the grasshopper so far and the homestead the little neighborhood places people are back i mean they want to drink when pals was closed for instance in new orleans it's a little neighborhood bar close to the um in mid city by where the jazz fest happens over there by the fairgrounds, people were going to pals when it was closed and just standing outside meeting there outside with their masks on and having like beers just because they missed it so much, you know? So now that the doors are back open, it's the, the drinks are flowing and I think it's going to be a crazy summer. People are just going to be, Getting oh, it's gonna be, it's gonna be an alcoholic summer. Uh, trigger alert, Alanons. Uh, it is going to be. <laughs> we need it, and you know, like the service industry needs it, and like go and tip your barkeeps, please. Anyone who's yeah. open, please, and hopefully these music venues will be open. I mean, that's the one thing I truly miss is going to see a show. I mean, it's like I, I you don't know how much you miss something, and you, I mean, you and I as. 50 something year old guys um, <laughs> go to more shows than, than most. So once those things, you know, once there's a, a show happening, you know, we're going to be first in line. 
As I said on this podcast last week, I cannot wait to go see Don Dawkins at the goddamn Canyon Club on October 21st. That That is... That is the, the Brendan in a nutshell right there. Well, Ahmet and I, Ahmet Zappa, who Rio knows from childhood. Yes. We had we just had him on our, our, our serious radio show, and and we and Ahmet asked him if, if he would have dinner with us at the Mexican place next to the Canyon Club before the show. And he was like, Yeah, of course. Nice. <laughs> well, I, I, I listen, everybody basically in diapers, by the way. <laughs> You've known Ahmet since he was in diapers. Yes. We're gonna get into all that. Yes. The one thing I want to say to people, the one of the things again, Rio was a taste maker and an influencer before those words were even in use and he always had a knack for finding dive bars one could transform into an amazing place starting when you were in college by picking roses Rose. a shitty bar on on lincoln yes uh it, 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 that they found that was run by this old lady and you and your friends convinced her to like let us put the music in the jukebox yeah, it was the best that place was the you, fucking best. That place was the fucking best. But the aesthetic of cool old school place that you can zhuzh up a little bit, but play amazing music, that has been part of your track, correct? Yes. The you, what, Talking about Roses, that was a block away from my apartment in Chicago when I went to Goodman Theater School there. And I went into one of the first times I went in there, I kind of befriended Rosa and her son. And... They were super nice to me. I was like, they knew me because I would go in there almost every night. And it was late. And this dude was just out of his mind and started fucking with her son. And, you know, I had the long hair and the leather jacket and the thing, whatever. And this dude started getting into it because it was like closing time. And the guy was like, dude, you're cut off. It's last call. And like, you're, I'm not serving you anymore. And the guy was like, fuck you. No, I'm going to have another drink. And he's like, no, you're not. And he grabbed the son from behind the bar and smashed his face on the bar top. And I grabbed him and took him outside and they had followed me and uh, like locked me out with this dude. So I'm standing there with this dude and he's like, fuck you, man. Fuck you. He's like, no, 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 no. I'm just like helping out. Like you're right. You're right. But it's, but it's too late. We're all going home. And he's like, okay, you know, you're cool, man. You're cool. Okay, fine. But fuck them. I was like, yeah, you're right. Fuck them. But we got to go home. We got to go home. He leaves. I go around the back and Rosa's there. She grabs me and pulls me inside. She's like, you, Jesus Christ, you, Jesus Christ, you, you saved my son, you, Jesus Christ, with the long hair and the whole thing. Because of that, I had full carte blanche at Rosa's. And then we took advantage of her disadvantage and we filled up the, I mean, that jukebox was insane with the 45s with ZZ Top and Cheap Trick and uh, Zeppelin, and like, I mean, it was like the fucking insane. It was like, that was one of the most insane jukeboxes of all time. It's a perfect segue to what we're going to talk about today. I want you to want. Formed in the early 70s, Cheap Trick is yeah. an American rock band from Rockford, Illinois. The band's classic lineup consisted of frontman Robin Zander, guitarist Rick Nielsen, bassist Tom Peterson, and drummer Bun E. Carlos. E. E. Carlos. <laughs> the band would not truly achieve mainstream popularity in the U.S. until 1979 with their breakthrough live album, Cheap Trick at Budokan, which included the live version of I Want You to Want Me, a top 10 hit. After a few different band incarnations in the early 70s, Nielsen, Peterson, and Carlos finally adopted the name Cheap Trick in August of 1973. 
The name was inspired by the band's attendance at a Slade concert, where Tom Peterson commented that Slade used every cheap trick in the book as part of their act. So here we are, Rio Hackford. Tell me what cheap trick means to you. Okay, so the first time that I realized what cheap trick was, who cheap trick is, I was in a water slide park in the valley, 1978, I believe, and I'm in the arcade in like my, you know, Birdwell fucking or OP shorts, whatever, whatever, whichever they were, playing Space Invaders, not kidding. And I heard this music coming from outside. And I like left, which was for any eight year old kid. I leave the game in the middle of the thing, Animal Quarters and the whole thing. I left and just it like drew me outside in the middle of a game, a Space Invaders game. I go out and Cheap Trick's playing at this water slide park. What? Yeah. And I was just like, holy fucking shit. Xander with the fucking hair and like the, the vest, that that era, just like the coolest ever. And fucking Nielsen with the cap. And the, I mean, it was like, holy shit, what is this? Like totally changed the course of my life. And I was just like mind blown, you know, literally just in a pair of shorts. And, you know, because you go back and forth, you go ride the water slide a bunch of times, go in, play the video games back and forth. It was like someone's birthday party or something. But fucking the fact that they were even playing a fucking water slide park in the Valley in 1978 is insane to begin with or whatever. But it was before Budokan. So it was like before they really smashed it into the call, you know, the fucking uh, arenas or whatever. From that moment, I was like, okay, I'm head over heels for this band. And you know, it, it fell into that era of Queen and Kiss and, you know, ACDC and, and these bands and stuff. But when we were kids, it was very bubblegum friendly. It was a, it was a, not only did the dudes like it, but the chicks liked it. That was one thing about Cheap Trick. Like the, the chicks, the, the girls dug them as much as the dudes. I mean, Xander or whatever is like. But but Debbie, what about the tunes? Exactly. That says it all, too. The fact that it's in Fast Times says it all. Over the Edge, by the way. Over the Edge, they're all over fucking, you know, that's 1979. That's a whole other scenario, by the way. But, I mean, the Van Halen, the Cheap Trick, the uh, the Queen, these are all like, life-changing things. And it wasn't like the Zeppelin uh, Sabbath, like dark ACDC dark thing. There was no darkness there. It was all good times, party, have a good time, water slide. (laughs) (laughs) It was fucking, it was the best. And so at that time, I listened to a ton ton of Cheap Trick. And then, you know, of course, when Budokan would surrender the first three records, basically, right? Even four records, but up until Dream Police. I mean, it was like in color. The first, the first record, which was under the radar and a little punk rock, I didn't discover until later on. Really, I I listened to them, but it was like that 78, 79, 80. That was really in the pocket, like being in summer camp in nineteen eighty, just fully rocking Cheap Trick all summer long. You know what I mean, like surrender all fucking summer long where was that summer camp uh santa barbara camp lore you fucking um 
told, I was like some of the best 1980, 81, like the fucking best ever spin the bottle fucking it was Indian themed, which would, we couldn't do these days, whatever. Everyone had their tribe and their teepees and the thing. And we're, but we were riding horseback and bows and arrows and stuff, but rock and cheap trick. It was awesome. Badass. But that was just in the general mix of things. It didn't really, the long-term cheap trick didn't kick in until we were in Chicago, actually. And Sweeney and I got really into the first cheap trick record that like 1988, 89, I'd go up to see you guys up in Evanston at Northwestern. And we got really into cheap trick and we got into uh stairway to heaven, like playing that shit backwards and all that stuff, like that whole weird thing. But the first cheap trick record we got heavily into. And then that, cause you know, as a kid, you're never really looking at the liner notes or whatever, right? You're just rocking the stuff on the radio and you're listening to the records until they're worn out and you're singing with the hairbrush. But Sweeney being the music nerd that he is and was and always will be, um, got into the, we got into the real nitty gritty of that first cheap trick record and how fucking brilliant it is and how punk rock it was and how before it's time it was. But the fact that they also, um, they covered Terry Reed on the first record that speak now or forever hold your peace. And we're like, who the fuck is Terry Reed? But we were like, who the fuck is Terry Reed? And then getting into, if people don't know who Terry Reed is, please look up Terry Reed, who is the, one of the unsung heroes of rock and roll. He was the guy who's known as the guy who turned down the Led Zeppelin gig. Uh, plant, you know, says that his, he owes his career to fucking Terry Reed. Then, well, the song the song that reminds me the most of the two of you, of yes. you and Matt Sweeney, guitar player extraordinaire, is this one. Randy Hogan was the original lead singer for Cheap Trick, but left the band shortly after its formation. He was then replaced by Robin Zander. With Xander on vocals, the band recorded a demo in 1975, and as they continued to play in warehouses, bowling alleys, and other various venues around the Midwest, they solidified their reputation as a powerful live act. The band was signed to Epic Records in early 1976 and released that first record that Rhea's been talking about, Cheap Trick, in early 77. While favored by critics, the album did not sell well. The album's lone single, Oh Candy, failed to chart as did the record. Yes. You know, I want to ask something that you just threw out, and I, I love this question. Um, I had Justin Warfield on the show, and he talked about... Grow- I've known since he was in diapers as well. <laughs> yes, and he thinks of you as the, the cool older kid that he could never be, because um, you guys went to the same school. Yes. Give me Rio Hackford's portrait of Los Angeles, late 70s, early 80s. Well... To me, it's definitely co-starring that cheap trick. And that there was a sort of uh, amazing freedom back then, if you, especially comparing it to now. You know, I mean, I was like, what we were allowed to do back then in general is just f- completely ridiculous, you know? But like those water slide parks, there were also these trampoline parks where you go get your individual trampoline and out in the valley and, and go-karting. And there was this... It, it was up and flippers, uh, which was like a roller skating rink in, in Hollywood for a couple of years there, which was that 79, 80, 81, like in that pocket there. 
and going to Westwood and going to the arcades and going to see movies like, but on your own, like we'd take the RTD bus to Westwood from Hollywood and it was fucking great. And there was this freedom and there was no one was worried about, you know, getting kidnapped and whatever. And, but by the way, it was also a war zone. Like Hollywood Boulevard was fucking gnarly. It was, it was funny, you know, like during the pandemic here, I, I live now in down South in Sunset Beach next to Seal Beach, this little like kind of island onto itself, a little hidden gem down here. And so we're sort of lost in time as it is. But when I went up, could go up to Hollywood or downtown um, during the pandemic, it's still going on now, by the way, but it was so gnarly, but it reminded me of what it was like back then. I mean, Hollywood Boulevard was fucking junky hooker crazy, you know, and Sunset Boulevard, like, because I grew up in Hollywood, it was close to, I grew up by in the Hollywood Hills, right by uh, the Hollywood Bowl. And I'd be able to just walk down to the Chinese and go see a movie on Friday night, you know, like no matter what it was, there was no carding and you know what I mean? Rated R what it was like any kind of horror movie, any kind of anything was just free for all, you know? And, you know, for me at that time too, this is like pre doing drugs and stuff too. So it was like, it, it started not too long after that, but that late seventies sort of freedom. And it was after the kind of, Manson murders had sort of died down because that early 70s, the late 60s, early 70s had its own LA vibe or whatever. But that mid to late 70s was, the, I mean, uh, in Annie Hall, when he goes out to try to get her back at the end or whatever, I know Woody Allen's taboo, whatever these days, whatever. But that they go to the source and he orders that I'll have a side of mashed yeast or whatever, you know, like that. That was really what was going on. You know, that was the source was that the fact that this, you know, cult was running this health food store and it was like that anyone can kind of go to and, uh, you know, hippies riding around in Rolls Royces and Maharishis. It was just it was and the bell bottoms and the styly was. But it was also that that um, my mother at that time lived in Venice Beach on the canals. Wow. I had a taste of I had the Hollywood shit going on. But then when I was staying with my mother, it was like full Dogtown style. Like I saw all those guys like it was crazy. I mean, the Venice Pier and that was when it was like in ruins, you know, and it was a fucking war zone down there. But for a kid, it was fucking rad, you know, and no like police presence. Like it was like a free for all down there. But but killer, you know, we were all riding our skateboards around and watching the surfers and then watching those skaters fucking do the pool and all that shit. It was fucking awesome. You know, that's the other thing in the Valley. It's like, you'd go search out the Valley to, to find an empty pool in the drought of one of these summers and fucking, you know, I wasn't doing that. I was too young to be doing that shit, but I was like, I, I saw him. It was the, that vibe, that Venice beach vibe was another cool thing. My, my stepmother, Lynn Littman, who's my brother's mother did a documentary called number our days in that, kind of seventies thing about the old Jews in, um, Venice beach. So we spent a lot of time down there as well, but then my mother moved the canals and this is when the canals was not, not hip, not, not $5 million homes. No, it was like beach shacks and super funky. And, but for a kid, it was fucking awesome. You know? So I got a taste of West side and Hollywood and the Valley 
because I ended up going to a couple schools out in the valley, like crossing that line into the, the 818 and stuff. And I never discriminated, by the way. People ragged in the valley, but I was like, Valley's awesome. It's got the fucking water slide parks and shit. It's fucking what's wrong? The valley the valley is awesome. I'm back in Beachwood Canyon, by the way, after being in the NoHo Arts District for a few years. You so. did your time. I did my time. I did my time. But the valley has its thing, man. You know, yep. you can't beat Baronies. Fucking Baronies, man. <laughs> you can't beat Val Surf if, if you're a kid. Yes. In the eighties. I'm sure that was like like going to Mecca. It was awesome. It was definitely awesome. And it was like Super mom and pop back then, too. Mm. It's so interesting to me because I think of you as someone who, like, literally creates scenes. You're that person that other people look to. Tell us what's cool. What should we be listening to? Where should we be hanging? What should we be doing? You are that person. Were you always kind of aware of scenes and processing the scenes as you were seeing things in Venice or Hollywood or wondering what the older kids were doing, where they were going. Were, were you aware of the Starwood? Were you aware of, of clubs that older kids were going to? See, my dad, my dad was, had me pretty young. My dad and mother were like 24 when they had me. And I was born in what is now Koreatown. And then we moved to San Pedro immediately. And then they split up. My mother moved to Trancus out in Zuma, like Malibu. Like this is early seventies with like a bunch of crazy, like actors and hippies and James Stacy, you know, he is the, the, the actor who like got in the car wreck and he's in once upon a time on Hollywood, his character, it was uh, Timothy Oliphant played him. So he was, I was going around to like, my first show was Ziggy Stardust at the Santa Monica Civic. Holy Christ. My dad would just take me. So when the, my parents split, when my dad had me, he would just take me everywhere. And it was at that time where it would just, I could go anywhere. So, you know, going to see shows, going to the Troubadour all the time. I go to, you know, I remember going to see Van Morrison. I remember going to see a bunch of insane Chuck Berry and all these things just but like super young like early 70s he also worked at the public television station at kct and would shot these live broadcasts and stuff and because he was a kind of younger cooler dude i was exposed to all this stuff you know and that i think instilled a little bit of this kind of just being around all this kind of cool influence just sent me in those directions, whatever, you know, like, uh, the hail, hail rock and roll days. Uh, my dad did, did that documentary on the, on Chuck Berry's, uh, 60th birthday anniversary. And we were hanging out with, you know, Keith Richards and stuff. This is in high school. I'd come back and all that shit was shot in our house and all those interviews. So it was like, I come back and it's Chuck Berry, little Richard, Bo Diddley. I mean, you know, Springsteen, uh, Willie Dixon, like all these, it was, it was insane, like crazy. But when I first, it's not the first time I met Chuck Berry, but when he was doing that, I had come home and I had just smoked a joint or whatever. And I coming home and it like, I'm walking into the, the house and they're like, the cameras are everywhere. And my dad's like, Hey, come here. It's, this is Chuck Berry. This is my son, Rio. And he's like, man, your name's Rio. Your name's Rio. You live in this place, babe. You Taylor's son, babe. You just fly away. You just fly away, baby. And I'm, like me, high as a kite, just going like, okay. Uh, <laughs> so that you know, like, just being exposed to this stuff was just insane, you know. And growing up on movie sets and stuff like this, 
it started out in documentary films with my dad and then all the kind of Hollywood stuff happened later, but just being around these cool things, Charles Bukowski and stuff in the early seventies with my pops and going to the racetrack and, you know, you go, you, you're around this stuff and it kind of rubs off on you a little bit. You know, I never, I thought of myself as being like a, <clears throat> a cool dude, but it's, um, I was definitely around some really fucking cool shit, you know? Um, and was ahead of the curve as far as just being exposed to stuff. Uh, so by the time I was in Chicago with you guys and I'd already been through the, the ringer and back in Hollywood, you know what I mean? So, well, that's, that's, that, that was the confidence that you walked around the earth with. I mean, it was, right. it was, it was, it was crazy to see it because I, we all felt so young. Like we still hadn't even like had adult experiences. And here's this kid from Los Angeles who just has, you, you wouldn't, you wouldn't call it swagger, but everybody else would because it, it's, it's part of your DNA. So last question before I play some more cheap trick, yes, please. do you think about this with your own kids? You know, sort of exposing them to stuff, or is it is the world a, a crazier place when you're a dad? <laughs> it's definitely well. I've got my wife to counterbalance what I would normally push on the kids, whatever you know. Um, she's the filter. Uh, I tried to a degree to like have the right stuff playing and be like, "Hey, check this out. This is Van Halen. You know, this is Cheap Trick. Whatever. You know, but also like this is the Beatles. Like, let's." this is very important stuff and like, see what clicks with them. I mean, my, my older son, Waylon, who's eight is, uh, a little more sensitive. My younger son, Buck is almost four. And he's like already like, he loves black Sabbath. You know what I mean? <laughs> he is Iron Man. You know what I mean? Like, and like rocks, you know, Waylon's a little more like he likes David Bowie, you know, he likes the Beatles. Uh, once I go into like Metallica or something like that, or, you know, Motorhead or whatever, um, it's, it's too much for him. You know, he does like Van, he's, he's getting into the Van Halen and the fact that they used ACDC and Sabbath in the movie Iron Man made them cool. Which is awesome. <laughs> like that, that was like a major plus, like, thank you Favreau for that. You know, that was huge. Um, but I kind of let them do their own thing. I'm not trying to push anything too heavy. I learned that from my brother, my brother, who's nine years younger. I tried to like force feed stuff and he just kicked back, like rebelled against me and my dad. Like he was, this is a perfect example. Uh, we're in England. I think I was like 18 or 19. It was right there in the Chicago years. And I'm going into the stumbling down in the morning. My brother, who's going to hate me telling the story has, uh, his earphones on his Walkman and I walk in and I'm like making a cup of tea and having some cereal, or whatever. And he's, he doesn't know I'm in there and he's got his things on. And I just hear him go like, Whoa. And I like grab the thing and I look and it's rent. He's walking <laughs> off the rent. And I'm just like, are you kidding? Like with the, I've tried with the Zeppelin and the stones and the thing. And this is what you're listening to. I, it's funny. We eventually, sent my brother, this is a long story short, sent my brother to our, my friend Dan Margulies, who grew up with Sweeney and uh, some of our other East Coast buddies. We sent him to Dan Camp, who, and he listened to him because Dan was cool and was not related. And he forced him to be like, this week, we're listening to the entire, you know, Black Sabbath catalog. 
and you're reading Confederacy of Dunces, and you're washing the fucking dishes. That was like his, we somehow worked it out and that changed his life, but it, he wasn't going to listen to me. And I learned that, okay, like, let's not push too hard with my kids, you know, let them figure it out, but make sure that the, the right stuff's kind of playing in the background if they want it. Cheap Trick's second album, In Color, was released in September of 77. However, the album's two singles, I Want You to Want Me and Southern Girls, failed the chart. Oddly, In Color made the band superstars in Japan, where I Want You to Want Me and Clock Strikes 10 were actual hits. More touring and recording followed. The band then released Heaven Tonight in April of 78. While In Color explored a lighter, more pop-oriented thing, Heaven Tonight was a hook-filled pop rock album with an attitude. Popular songs from this album include the anthemic Surrender, Albita Sane, the title track, and a cover of The Moves, California Man. Yes. Just more notes from Wikipedia. Hey, quick question. The thing I've been doing lately, I have been basically since Once Upon a Time in Hollywood came out, I have been listening to almost nothing but that 60s 93 KHJ music. Nice, yeah. Because the soundtrack of that film floored me. Yeah. The art department of that film floored me. Right. Uh, but the the soundtrack just killed me. And the move best. the band that that it, the best. So I've I've done a deep dive into a lot of the British psychedelic and garage bands, the American psychedelic and garage bands. That's what I have been listening to. Um, because I, I, you know, I did get to a point uh, a few years ago where I just couldn't listen to new music anymore. Yeah, I, I don't know what that was. Maybe it's just getting old. But for me, so I've gone backwards to go to a Brendan camp is basically, OK, I'm going to listen to all the turtles now. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I'm going to actually try to listen to the first three Jefferson uh, Airplane albums. Right. And it's been a, a super fun experience for me because I'm constantly looking for like the new thing that I can sink my teeth into. Move, I think, is the, one of the most underrated out of that entire genre there. And and it's only a a, a, a second because it he went into so Jeff Lynn went into ELO from that and kind of took some of the catalog with him. So you can't even find some of this move stuff like the the do ya whatever, you know, like the, the classic move song, which became an ELO song, that version, the move version is one of the greatest of all time. Yeah. It's just, I, I, I love them. And I, I, I wish that, uh, that, uh, I, I, they play this stuff on little Stevens underground garage on yeah. serious radio, which is, is amazing. But you know, we were denied so much music in America. I mean, yeah. for me as a kid from Pittsburgh and then from Albuquerque, yeah. you know, the FM stations, 95 KLOS is still playing the same songs they played it's, it's insane. 25 years ago. It's fucking crazy. But you know, Terry Reed mm -hmm. falls into that, that category, that sixties lost stuff. Cause it's, that's, that's what Sweeney and I were obsessing on when we got into Terry Reed was like, wait a second. We feel like we've heard this, but we haven't. It's like, this is, this is something that we should all have been listening. We should have grown up with this but we didn't have access to it because it was just, it, it didn't make it, you know, it was like obscure stuff. But you look at um, like the fact that cheap trick covered it, the Hollies covered Terry Reed, all these guys like worship Terry Reed, but no one knows who the fuck Terry Reed is. You know, like there is no, the black crows 
without Terry Reed. You know, it's like his voice is just one of the best of all super lungs. It's just, he's the one of the best of all times. And this unsung hero that nobody fucking knows except the people, the music nerds in the know, you know, but you know, I going back to this, that this, this Terry Reed thing became like an obsession and I almost saw him in England one time, but it didn't, I, I was leaving like the night that he was playing in some little place. And I was like, fuck, you know? And then, um, it turned out he was playing at McCabe's the day that Sweeney was coming. I was picking Sweeney up at the airport and he didn't know whatever. I got tickets. I picked Sweeney up at the airport and he's like, so what are we doing? And I'm like, we're going to McCabe's to see Terry Reed. And he's like, are you fucking kidding me? Like we went from LAX to McCabe's. We walk in guy Lincoln, who used to run the place. I don't know if he still does. We're talking to him. Sweeney had known him from, uh, Will Oldham and the, the super wolf stuff that he's that Sweeney's been involved with. We're talking and just kind of saying like, we're really excited. We've never seen Terry and we're fans. And this is just like going to be fucking awesome. And he's like, you have no, you have no idea how awesome it's going to be. Like he's, he's a character, just a warning, you know, like he's, he's, he's uh, his own guy. And Terry walks up for some reason, straight to me and he's like hey man how you doing hey, hey, hey. they don't have any just, come on come on we're going upstairs whatever I'm like okay and i follow him sweeney comes up after me we go up and we just start chatting and i'm saying you know uh my name's rio and i ask him if he's ever been in new orleans and he's like no i've never played in new orleans i was like well dude i have a club in new orleans when i jacks we're gonna have to get your ass out there and he's like yes we're gonna i'm gonna say it just straight off the bat, yes. He is getting ready to go on. He's in this fucking incredible suit, and he's got the crazy teeth, and the it's just. And he's like, "All right, man." So he's like, "Hey, man, get, get me a drink." And I'm like, "Okay." Uh, he had like a stash of Jim Beam and some Coke, or whatever. And um, he just goes on the stage, and we follow him in the McCabe's, and we're sitting there. And I was like, "Hey, man, speak now." Just. If you're taking requests, he's like, oh man, I haven't really played that in years. You know, it's not really in the, I don't know if we can work it out. I haven't really rehearsed it. Whatever. And in the middle of the set, he's like, Hey, Ray, you gave me a drink, another drink, whatever. So I'm like going back in the middle of the set, having just met this guy, I'm making beam and Cokes and coming off to the, onto the stage and handing him. And he plays ends up in the middle of a song, just going in to speak now. And is just playing to me on the serenading me and Sweeney on the steps of the thing, like totally insane stuff. And after that, we became buddies. I flew him out for Jazz Fest multiple times, got him in when Plant was playing Jazz Fest into Jazz Fest to hang with other Plant. I mean, like totally insane stuff. Like he's like a Terry Reed's now like a buddy, you know. This next one is the first song on our new album. It just came out this week and the song is called Surrender. Cheap Trick found early success in Japan and capitalized on this popularity by recording Cheap Trick in Budokan in Tokyo on April 20th and 30th of 1978 with an audience of 12,000 screaming Japanese fans nearly drowning out the band at times. The album was intended for release in Japan only, but with strong airplay on the promotional album From Tokyo to You, 
An estimated 30,000 import copies were sold in the U.S., and the album was finally released domestically in February of 1979, of course, becoming the soundtrack for all those kids at camp like Rio and me. Producer Jack Douglas claimed that the audio from Budokan was actually from the Osaka show, which was much smaller, uh, because the audio from the Budokan show was so poor. Budokan peaked at number four in the U.S. and became the group's best-selling record with over three million copies sold. It also ranked number 13 on Billboard's top pop albums of 1979. The single, I Want You to Want Me, reached number seven on the Billboard Hot 100, and the band's cover of Fats Domino's Ain't That a Shame reached number 35. I just want to remind people that McCabe's is a little tiny uh, it's not. It's a guitar. It's a vintage guitar store. Yeah. It's a mu- music store that would have incredible music acts in their little sort of performance venue on the side. And so, what an experience for you. I have an important question. Yeah. Were you at the Johnny Cash show at the Viper Room? I was. God damn it! I knew it. See, you can, can hear me. Actually, you can hear me in the like yelling in the background. It was me. My dad and I went. Mike Farrell, who was one of my uh, best buddies from high school, was the doorman and got us in. And yeah, you can actually hear me in the recording. It's crazy. It's just like I, in the background. Okay. So only about five, five, five years ago, Johnny Cash hit me like a fucking freight train. Yeah. Quick tangent 60s Waylon Jennings, I fucking love now. Oh, man. 60s Waylon Jennings. Waylon's the best. Okay, so Johnny Cash hits me like a ton of bricks. I absorb as much as I can. I go to see Roseanne Cash when she comes to L.A. now. Uh, I just love all that stuff, and that's one of those things that I regret not knowing. I knew it was happening Yeah, because you were connected with the Viper Room. There was so much insane stuff happening there. If you were in the know, you got to go see that stuff. And it's like the one regret that I have. And then like looking back on all the times that I just didn't go to Johnny Cash because I was an idiot in the nineties, you know, being able to see him at the Pantages, yeah, yeah. you know, it's, it's really one of the, what's that? We saw him at the Palomino club. Out there. You saw Johnny Cash at the Palomino club in North Hollywood. Yes. God. Saw a bunch of people. at the Palomino. Damn club. it. Because my dad, again, he would just take me everywhere with him. It was, and it was that time where you could go to a bar and, you know, not get the stink eye for having uh, sitting there having drinks with a, you know, six year old at the at the at the table. <laughs> I, I I feel like June Carter is my spirit mom. Yeah, I'll just say that I, I I'm I'm I've I've absorbed all the Carter family stuff. I'm I'm obsessed with the sisters performing. Yeah, uh, I, that is incredible. Give me, tell me the truth. Yeah, give me because you are in the know. What was really going on at the Viper Room? What was really going on you at know, Three of Clubs? What was really where? Give me the eyes wide shut version of Los Angeles that uh, a regular person wouldn't know. Well, you know, like just for instance, at that Johnny Cash show, which was insane i mean it was like the most intimate just small and it was just an incredible show but johnny depp to his credit you know opened that club which was the central um which was a dive thing that i used to go to like in high school and stuff like that and um he took that place and made it his sort of wet dream come true and would have was able to 
with his connections and stuff to have shows and stuff like that. You know, it was for a moment in time, you know, a really, there were moments of it being really cool. It was also tragic and all that stuff, river Phoenix and all that stuff. But, but, you know, these guys that had these bars wanted to have some place to, that they wanted to hang out at. That's why Johnny bought that place and made it his sort of living room, right? Where celebs could kind of go and, and hang and not be fucked with. And I mean, like you, you just can't do that these days, whatever else, but you know, that I took a, a little of, of that. And the, from the guys at the three clubs, the same kind of thing. It's like, those guys didn't have that bar and like stayed home. They were there every night having a good time. Like they built this place to their aesthetic dream that they wanted to hang out with and where they could go have drinks with their friends. It was maybe not the best business friendly thing. I don't know how much money Johnny made from these, you know, places. And I know that the three clubs guys, whatever they still, the three clubs still exist. It's still the same owners. But I took that with my own places and was like, where do, where would I want to go see a show? Where would I want to go have a drink? And kind of with that aesthetic and what my aesthetic was, that's what these places are. They're extensions of me and where I'd want to hang out and with my partners and stuff, these places as well. You know, I'm not the total mastermind behind all of them. It's like, these are, there are unsung heroes behind the scenes and stuff too. And the bartenders and the staff and all this stuff, it all is like, almost like producing a movie, you know, you build the set, you have the soundtrack, you hire the, your cast and crew and, but it's every fucking night, you know, for years and years and years. I mean, it's, it's hard work, but also can pay off like that. You have those moments like, uh, Johnny did with, with the Johnny cash night that that goes down in history. I mean, in, in, uh, in one I Jacks, we've had some shows, you know, having Rocky Erickson play, at one eye jacks was like a dream come true having got it by voices play it at my place at one eye jacks multiple times dream come true queens of the stone age playing one eye jacks fucking i could have shut the the place down after that you know uh the melvins like having those guys play it just it's some you have these moments where you're like holy shit this is why i do this whatever you know i'm sure johnny afterwards we my dad and i went up to him and said hey thank you for doing this, this is like a once in a lifetime. And he was like, himself was like, I don't know, like, can you fucking believe this? This is, that was insane. Dream Police is the fourth studio album by American rock band Cheap Trick. It was released in 1979. It was their third release in a row produced by Tom Werman. It's the band's most commercially successful studio album going to number six on the Billboard charts. Uh, it was certified platinum within a few months of its release. The album had been completed by early 79, but the release was pushed back due to the surprise success of Budokan. The album's title track became a top 30 hit for the band, and the song Voices was also a hit. Voices has been used twice in the soundtrack of the American sitcom How I Met Your Mother. To date, Cheap Trick have recorded 20 studio albums. They've sold more than 20 million records. And they performed live more than 3,700 times. They still tour to this day with Tom Peterson's son, Dax, on drums. And, of course, Cheap Trick were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2016. Maiden better get in this week. That's all I have to say about that. Okay, final question yes. about 
your wonderful journey. When you own these incredible places. By the way, that was not, it's not Tom Peterson's son playing. It's, uh, it's, um, Rick Nielsen's son. Nielsen's son. Oh, duh. Yeah. What an idiot. Why did I, I'm blind as a bat. It's all right. Jack, when you own, Jack, who's by the way, great dude, it's because I've seen these guys so many times, whatever I've befriended these guys and I've become pals with Dax and hung with Nielsen. Those guys have come to the bar and hung out and, they're fucking great. And the fact that they're still playing to this day, still making records, still like the same dudes, it's just insane. Them and ZZ Top, I'm telling you, are just like the best. I got to see them at the Roxy in like 2000. Yeah. Uh, when they re-released Budokan and had a special package, and they basically played the Budokan show from start to finish. Yes. We got tickets via KCRW. And I just remember thinking like, oh, wow, this is it's an incredible show. Cheap trick at the Roxy, incredible fucking show. But I do remember thinking, wow, these guys are really old. And that was 2000. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, that, come on. That, they did a tour where they played the first three records. Um, and I saw that in multiple cities. I like was kind of following them around. I, they, I think they played, it was like the House of Blues or something like that. But they played first record, In Color, and Heaven Tonight each night a different thing. Like they did a three night stand. So I'm in new Orleans. I mean, it was like, that was, that was the coolest ever for me and hanging out with them afterwards. And they were fucking drinking Jägermeister. Xander was (laughs) the Jägermeister time. Ouch. God damn it. Okay. Final question. And I'll let you go. Cause I'm so curious about this. When you own all these fantastic places in these venues that are known to generate income pre pandemic, of course, when do you run up against the sketchy characters and how do you deal with that? I'm I'm talking about, um, I would imagine if you were to have a successful place, you would get a visit by somebody who says, um, Hey, if you want to do business in this area, yeah, uh, you have to pay homage to us. I'll put it that way. You know, it's, it depends on where you're at and what city and all that kind of stuff, you know? Um, and it happens in different ways. The best was in New Orleans when I was first opening the Matador, my first bar there, and first bar that was my my place. I went there, and the, the license was grandfathered in. It had been a bar forever, and I was going in just to, just to renew the license. And I go into City Hall, this big, white, skinny dude, you know, and all of City Hall was black. And I go in and I'm like, hey, you know, uh, just renewing this license. They're like, mm-mm, nope. I'm like, well, what's the problem? They're like, nope, mm-mm. And I'm like, okay, well, they're like, just sending me away every time. And I finally, uh, I called John Goodman, who is a family friend. The John Goodman. The John Goodman, um, who had worked with my dad and was a, he's one of the best dudes of all time. And told him, I was like, and John had worked had, uh, worked in New Orleans with my dad on Everybody's All-American a movie and met his wife at LSU there. They got married and then he moved to New Orleans and just, he still to this day lives in New Orleans. And I called him, I was like, you know, John, what do I do? And he's like, call this guy. I call this dude. He meets up with me. He's like, what do you need? And I'm like, well, I, I just, I'm just trying to renew this license. That's it. I've got the money. It's the license is there. It just needs to be renewed. 
I go in with this guy into city hall. He walks in the back and he goes, uh, they point at me and they're like, Oh yeah, we know that white boy. He kind of makes a head count. He walks out with me. We walk across the street. We get 13 shrimp po' boys, 13 Cokes and 13 fries. We go back in with all of the food and we walk out with the license and we're walking out. And I, and I go, what, what, what's the secret? He's like, never go into city hall empty handed, buddy. And I said, got it. Okay. So after that, I never would go in there. First of all, they knew who I was then. I'd go in there with cookies. I'd go in there with some kind of banana bread or some kind of thing with some kind of baked good, some kind of meal for these, these guys. And that, that was, that was the deal. That was the most kind of interesting one. There's been some shady characters that have come in and been like, this is our territory. And you just have to kind of like be friendly enough and say, Hey, this is not the place that it used to be. This is a new place. This is how we run things now. And just be firm about it. You know, when I first opened the Monty, it was sketchy. I mean, mm-hmm. super sketchy. And, uh, I had to kind of stand up to some, some gang member dudes there and they were really kind of scary, but I was like holding my, holding the line. And once they realized that I wasn't going to budge, they were cool and they respected it and then would come back with their girlfriends and stuff like that. Realized it was not going to be their clubhouse, but it was a place, nicer place that they could go on like a date and they were going to be taken care of. So that was, that was another thing, but they each have their own little personalities. These bars, you know, as the world opens up, please homestead pals, one eyed jacks, Lamonte, Please, uh, please frequent these places and uh, get everyone back on track. Dip your um, yes. On that note, what can we play you out with today? I think one of the best and most underrated Cheap Trick songs is uh, Mandicello on the first record. Is just like, gets me every time. It's a kind of ballad, but it's Tom Peterson on his 12-string bass. And it's just like, it's magic. It's killer. Well, you're killer. You're magic. And I want to thank you so much for the profound influence you have had on my life. And I mean that from the heart, even though we haven't gotten the chance to see each other too much in in the last few years, but all the best. And I do hope to see you physically soon. So remember people frequent those places. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Barkeep. Yeah. Tip your barkeep. And to the rest of you, thank you so much for listening, liking, subscribing, leaving reviews. So many great guests coming down the line. And of course, the Brando cast is produced by Mr. Richard Sheltinga. So until the next time, cats and kittens. 